0: The scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Bob. I asked... uh, any of our elders or Pastor David, if they want to take this pastor this morning, but they all said no, so I'm, I guess I'm doing this one today. Um, but anyways, you know, remember in fifth and sixth grade, some of you had sex ed class, I did in fifth and sixth grade, and there was like, the teacher was like, let's get our giggles out, you know, like let's just get our giggles out and, 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 and so we can have this conversation. Well, this week David and I had a funny thing happen, we... Uh, we um, record every week a growth group shepherd video, which is a video that goes to our growth group leaders, the shepherds, and it's an ongoing training video, we talk through some of the questions and stuff, and and this week David and I, we were ending our time, we always pray at the end, and David was praying and thanking God for the goodness of sex, which we'll talk about this morning, And, and something kind of funny happened, so take a look at it. Let me pray, because you great. need it. Uh, okay. Yeah, same. <laughs> Let me pray, though.
0: Father, <laughs> and we... And our shepherds need it. Yeah, our we. shepherds need it. <laughs> oh, Let's boy. do it. Uh, Father, thank you for... Uh, thank you for the good gift of sex that you have given You're welcome. to... Oh, my, that was serious. <laughs> that, that was awkward. We couldn't have that better. <laughs> Let's try that prayer again.
1: That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I'm guessing God's voice doesn't sound like Siri. I sure hope it doesn't. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, so that did happen uh, this week. Oh, no. Right. Yeah. Sex is not from Siri, just so you know that. And God's voice doesn't sound like Siri. I sure hope not. Well, we got our giggles out, right? We can talk about sex now. Oh, it was funny. It, was, it couldn't have timed it any better. Um, Well, this fall, we've been working our way through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In this series, we've entitled Living Today While Longing for Tomorrow. Remember, they were a young church in their faith. They were facing persecution, but they were also an outwardly missional church, and their love of Jesus had spilled out to the entire community. And the first three chapters that we've gone through, they were really just the welcome to, or the, the welcome, the introduction, the, the thankfulness Paul uh, talked about for the church. They were kind of the introduction, just really. We've changed today to get to chapter 4. We take a turn after Paul spent time defending his ministry, describing his, his love for them. Now in chapter 4, he turns to some application. You're like, finally, right? Three chapters? We applied them, but really he's getting to some application today. He's going to instruct them and he's going to instruct us how we are to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ through chapters four and five now. So, for the next three sermons, we're going to apply the gospel as Paul does to three really important areas in life sex, work, and then finally, death and grieving. Talk about covering the breadth, the the scope of life, right? In those three topics. Uh, This morning, we won't say everything about sex. We, we couldn't in one time together, one uh, message on this topic, um, but it is. It, the topic this morning is, is is sex. Usually pastors spend the first five minutes of a sermon laying out some sort of problem, some sort of crisis, showing their audience why they need to have this text or this topic addressed. I don't think I actually have to do that this morning, do I? <laughs> topic is sex, right? With our culture's deification of sex and obsession of sex, to the sexual sin we find outside the church and inside the church, even with many of its leaders, especially in these last couple years, to all the fallout and victims we're seeing in our culture, from the ideas of, of the sexual revolution of the past 60 years, to the pornification, you might call it, of our culture. We've supposedly been liberated sexually, haven't we, from ancient ideas and texts and oppression of religion, but we're seeing the results of that now. We've finally thrown off the chains of the oppressive past and sort of the religious influence, and now we understand, or at least so we think, that sex is just another biological function like eating. Well, really? <laughs> ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims, The rotten fruit of this sexual revolution we are reaping in our culture and gathering up right now this distortion of sex. Victims and broken lives and families are being kind of churned out in the wake of this sexual revolution. And this was so important for God's people to hear In Thessalonica a couple thousand years ago, and it is for us too, in their context in the Roman Empire, the Greek religion was all mixed up with sex actually. The cultic practices of the temple at that time for many of the the pagan gods involved some kind of, of sexual experience and activities of temple sex that would take place, and there were actually even temple prostitutes. So going to worship Your God at that time often contained a sexual encounter. Add to that that at this time in history, most men probably would have had about four different women that they had sex with, a mistress, a concubine, a prostitute, and then their wife. Um, Those all have specific Greek terms that define a a different function that each one of those women would serve in the life of that man. And Thessalonica, like Corinth, which our letter is written to, was known for its sexual promiscuity, just like Corinth. Corinth. In many ways, like our culture today, a deification of sex, an obsession with sex, a pornification of a culture, we have to, we need to talk about sex. If you're a guest this morning, welcome to Bethany Church. (laughs) You have come back, you've come on an interesting morning. Uh, But this is what we do here. We go through books of the Bible for this very reason makes it impossible to 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 pass over hard subjects and avoid difficult topics. So this is what we do here. Grab your outline. Hopefully you have it there. We've got a lot to fill in. We're gonna go through it quick today. Have your text open to First Thessalonians four. We're gonna talk about four truths about sex. Four different truths about sex. And I know as we come to this topic today, did you hear our songs? I know this kind of topic today maybe brings a baggage of shame with you, a baggage of guilt with you, maybe a baggage of pain or hurt with you. Did you hear what we saw, we sang today? The blood of Jesus washes away any stain. Yeah, any stain. We're going to talk about that more when we get to point four, but I wanted to say something about that ahead of time too. We're going to look at this passage. Um, in just a moment, to see the clear call to sexual holiness, we're going to call it. And then we're going to add at the end the gospel power for holy sex, we're going to call it. But for us to understand really what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to need to do just a little bit of background to get a bigger picture and backdrop to what the Bible says about sex. And in particular, I think our young people even, some of our youth here today, some in our early 20s who are here today, need to hear this. You need to hear what God says about sex. So here's our first truth. We're going to talk about the good gift of sex. The good gift of sex this morning. Paul this morning wants us to know that what he says about sex, it's absolutely authoritative on this matter. It's not just Paul's opinion. It's not just one man's opinion. In fact, to hear Paul speak really is to hear Jesus speak. The word comes through the apostles, inspired by God. He he wants us to know that. Did you see in the first two verses here of chapter 4, he says, these instructions are both in the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus. He also says in verse 3, this is the will of God. Paul is wanting to make sure that you hear, that the Thessalonians hear, when we hear his word, we are hearing from Jesus. And so even as I truthfully speak and truthfully convey about it, we're hearing from God. This is the will of God, he says. We don't receive these words this morning as Paul's words or my opinion on sex, but words from Christ and the will of God. So how is sex a good gift? Here's the first of the few subpoints under there. Sex is from God, and he has called it good. We need to know this. This is really important for us we didn't create sex our culture didn't sex is from god it's his he designed it he invented it he made it he made us and our bodies and how they fit together as men and women it's his he owns it like he like he owns your body really he's given us a body and those bodies are good actually Sometimes we think in, in kind of Greek philosophical ways that somehow the spiritual world is, world is what matters and the body is kind of icky and yucky and it's going to die anyways. No, no, no. In God's eyes, both are good. And both were given to you. And both were never actually meant to be separated at death like they are. Sex is good. He gave you a body. And he's given us our sexual desires and all our desires and, and, uh, that, that, that center around sex. And so sex is good. In fact, God says It's great. He calls it very good as the first man and women come together. You know the story in the Garden of Eden, and they consummate their, their marriage in the garden, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, which, if anything, is an invitation to have lots of sex. Wouldn't it be? Be fruitful and multiply. He kind of says, get busy, Adam and Eve. <laughs> he didn't look down at shock and see them and go, what are you doing with those bodies I gave you? He didn't sex is from God, and therefore it's very good. And Adam and Eve's sinless sexual desires before the fall were very good. And there's other places in the Bible, like Song of Solomon, that celebrates the goodness of sex between the man and the woman in ways that if it was translated literally, you would blush if, when you read it. Our, our translators have kind of been too polite at times, and they've sort of lost, we've lost some of the color in translation that if you were to read it and have it literally translated, you would kind of be like, whoa, the Bible says that? It does. (laughs) Song of Solomon says, it's good for a man and woman to have sex in marriage. And there's the catch. Because God designed sex for a man and a woman in marriage, that is its place, That's its place. Here's the second part about the goodness of sex. Sex is only for marriage. That is where it is best. That is where it is good. It's pretty clear in the Bible and simple. It's not really complicated. If God designed it, God made it, and God called it good, it's only good in the context that he's given it. Sex is for one man and one woman, for the context, the sphere, the context of marriage It's so powerful and good that he knows that's actually the only the one place where it works. That's why we call it a covenant. It's not contractual like love is today in the culture. If you keep up your end of the bargain and I keep up mine, as long as you keep up your end of the bargain, I'll stay in this thing. That's a contract. No, God covenants. He's absolutely committed to us. And so he defines marriage that way. It becomes really the only safe place for it covenant between one man and one woman in marriage. Doesn't 2015 feel like a lifetime ago? you remember what happened that year? That was the Obergefell decision uh, of same-sex marriage in the Supreme Court. You know, it's only been legal for seven years, and yet it feels like a lifetime ago. But here's the key. Just because the Supreme Court rules on something doesn't make it right. In the same way of heterosexual sex outside of marriage, we'll talk a bit today about homosexual gay sex as well. Sex is God's thing, and we don't get to choose as humans how to bend it and mold it and shape it and redefine it without absolutely devastating consequences for personal lives, for families, for a culture. And the last thing on the point of the uh, the goodness of sex is this. Sex is for procreation and pleasure. This is good news. It's not just for the function of procreation, although it is that. And we really don't have a biblical picture uh, apart from uh, most naturally in common, marriage, sex, and children coming from that, procreation. But it's also for the fun of pleasure. Pleasure. And sometimes the church hasn't always gotten that through the decades and centuries. God has, in his goodness, has given us sex for both of those things. On the one hand, procreation, sex is, is, is symbolic and literally the two becoming one flesh. And God made us for this. And from that union then, which is a symbol of really whole life union for a man and a woman, comes a child. If, if God so chooses and a woman conceives and then gives birth to a baby, and, and then all of a sudden, you have this baby, and there they are. And with that first one, you're kind of thinking, do you have that feeling like, they're going to let me take this little person home from the hospital? Like They're going to let me do this? It almost felt like I was stealing something that really I wasn't supposed to take. Yes, they are, because that baby is part of him and part of her, that biological oneness that comes together with this shared DNA and genes, and we procreate, and there this child is. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, and It's amazing. But it's not just for that. It's not just for that. It's also for pleasure. As husbands and wives are covenanted together. They, they belong to one another, Paul says. Our bodies are for each other. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is speaking of the self-giving act of love with our bodies and, and, and speaks of it as beautiful and, and regular in marriage. He says this, but because of the temptation to sexual morality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There you have it. We belong to each other in the context of a healthy and biblical marriage. This is the good gift of sex according to the Bible now according to God and his word. And and, and we we need to celebrate that here at Bethany Church and talk about that here at Bethany Church. Kids, youth, you need to know these truths about sex as you grow and mature. You have to know this because somebody's gonna teach you some message, not somebody, lots of somebodies are gonna teach you a message about what sex is, about what it's for, and why, it's, why we have it. Somebody is going to teach you that message. And here's what you need to know. Sex is God's. It's not pop cultures. It's not singers. It's not celebrities. It's not anybody else's but God's. It is his. It's his good gift. But you also need to understand its context and where it's supposed to happen and why the context of marriage, and we're gonna talk about a little more in a moment why he put it in its context. He's not just a cosmic killjoy. It brings us to our second truth. I wish we could stop right here this morning. I wish we could end the sermon and we'd all be like, Yes, that's great. Sex is good, God has made it, let's go home. No, but we can't stop there, can we? It's too bad. The sad reality, though, in truth, number two, that we have to talk about for a couple minutes is this. The sad reality of sex after the fall. If there was ever an area of our humanity where we can see has been impacted by sin entering the world, it's sex, isn't it? It's sex. It's, it's, it's the use of our bodies and the desires that come from us internally. If there's ever a place, and here's the truth, one of the truths I want us to ha- get underneath this, We all, all of us are sexual sinners. And it plays out in life in many ways. All of us. I am a sexual sinner. You are a sexual sinner. Every person in this room who's gone through puberty is a sexual sinner. And the world, remember I said, Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. While our capacity for sexual sin and bad ideas has been incalculable around this topic. Sex has been abused. It's been misused. The good thing that God has given has become an idol to many. An obsession for our culture. Absolutely dominated and obsessed. Do you know before the 20th century... To define yourself as humanity, I mean, you would, of course, sex would be in there a little bit, but it, it, to be human was not who you went to bed with, and that's what it equals today. That's why in our discussion of sex, to uh, speak against a same-sex attraction or sex outside of marriage feels to somebody like you're denying their personhood, because we've equated sex entirely with what it means to be human. And, and humanity and being made in the image of God is so much more than our sexuality, We've bought into that lie. And it's been abused and misused. It's become an idol and an obsession. It's a good thing that becomes a God thing. That's how we kind of define idolatry sometimes here. A good thing that becomes a God thing. And our idols enslave us. They take over our life. As culture has ripped sex from its God-given context, what we've done is we've opened a cauldron of fire that we're playing with personal indulgence, exploitation, the objectification of women by men in the entertainment, billion-dollar industry, the pornographic industry, sexual abuse, sexual addiction, rape, incest, abortion even in there, premarital sex, the decline of birth rates, the decline of marriage rates in our culture. All of these are the rotten fruit of a distortion of sex, of of, of, of liberating ourselves, so to speak, from the constraints that God has put on sex for our own gratification and pleasure when we've taken it out of its God-given context. See why I said I wish we could stop? (laughs) We are relationally and sexually broken. We are sexual sinners in humanity. But just in case you weren't sure, to our young people, to our young people, as we talk about this idea of sexual brokenness and and, and sexual sin, getting married doesn't solve our sexual problems. Getting married doesn't solve maybe your sexual history or the problems and baggage that you and I, we bring into our relationships. Here's another sub point. Even married couples, if you're married or have been, you know this. Even married couples who are committed to God's context for sex experience sexual challenges. In my last pastoral job as a college pastor, I did a ton of of, of premarital counseling, and one of the things we would talk about with those young adults is the reality of bringing your sexual sin and expectations too into marriage and how sex in marriage wouldn't immediately fix things. Marriage doesn't cure a pornography addiction, even though some of those college guys I talked to thought it would. And many times for men, it fermented excites them sexually, and the problem even became more severe through marriage and increased the addiction. Sometimes one spouse is desiring sex more than the other in marriage. And marriage doesn't undo many of the shame people feel about premarital sexual experiences. We bring with us our sexual suitcases to our marriage, don't we? And sometimes they take decades to work through. It's a sad reality. We bring those things with us to marriage, our history of sin and distorted views we may have on sex. And I'll tell you, nothing distorts a man's view of sex, and women too, more than pornography. There's a whole generation of men and women who've been shaped by that view of sex, and the relational strife in marriage uh, undoubtedly impacts a sex life. We know that if you're married. Sex is the ultimate expression of vulnerable intimacy and closeness and, and, and oneness. And if you're not one in the kitchen in the family room, there's no way you're going to be one in the bedroom, right? You know that. We know that. In other words, there's, there's, if there's an emotional division with a couple or strain, there's usually a sexual strain as well. They, they go hand in hand. And it usually, usually involves both parties. My pastoral years of counseling and talking with couples and people and adults and youth, there's two problems in marriage areas that cause the most frequent marital problems. You know what they are, right? Money and sex. Money and sex. We don't talk enough about this in the church. We just don't. That sexual problems are most of the time a relational problem first in a marriage. We don't talk about it enough. We're not transparent enough. This is the sad reality of our sexual brokenness. And in the same way we need more celebration about the goodness of sex in the church, we also need more transparency and honesty about our sexual sin. Aren't you so looking into going to growth group this week? Looking forward to it? <laughs> We're not going to ask you in a same-sex or co-ed gender group to confess your sexual sins or reveal them to each other. But what would happen, though, if you shared your struggle with a trusted friend, a trusted friend of the same gender, a man to share with a man or a woman with a woman? What would happen if you shared that struggle with someone in the church? We would expose and bring to light what the enemy would love to be kept hidden in the darkness, I'm gonna talk about lots of resources out there on the table today, and there are. One of them is an article that speaks about the power of confessing your sexual sin to someone you trust in the church. It's out there today. Grab it if you wanna know more about that. What would happen? We need people to lead the way in that. We need men and women to lead the way in that. We need someone somewhere at some time to share their stories so that we realize it's a safe place to do that here. We need to have the gospel heal, be the balm, be the the sweet medicine to our sexual sin and brokenness. Remember, we are all, all of us, sexual sinners. There's no one in this room that, at least at a heart level, right, as Jesus took adultery to the heart level, there's no one in this room. The goodness of sex and sexual sin and brokenness now we're ready to understand as we come now to this passage and we're going to go through it fairly quickly we're now ready to understand with this background what paul is calling us to when he calls us to sexual holiness so let's look at that third truth the clear call from god for sexual holiness or you could call it holy sex if that helps to stick in your mind more the clear call it's so clear it's so simple Take a look at your text after you fill that in, number 3, at verse 3 of chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. God calls his children, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians here, God calls his children in a very clear, very straightforward call to sexual holiness. And I did, we didn't call the, the, the message today... Sexual purity, why? Because of that word there, sanctification. As he says, it's the will of God to be sanctified, which is sexual purity. Sanctification means to be set apart. To be set apart and, and, and to be made, to be set apart for a purpose, holiness. God is perfectly set apart and holy, and so he wants his children then to be set apart too. That's you and I. To live a life that's different from the rest of culture. And I believe a godly Sexual marriage actually is even the means to our sanctification. Holy sex inside a marriage is actually one of the ways God grows us as a disciple in our own holiness. Think about it. What better way to affirm someone than in marriage, and sex in marriage, and affirm the beauty that God has placed in them, and affirm your your love for someone, and, and encourage them to grow internally into the beautiful creature God has always meant them to be then through the whole person giving of yourself to that person in sex in that context of marriage God uses it to sanctify us to grow us verse 7 makes that clear look at look at it again with me he says in verse 7 for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness but notice back in verse 3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So let's pull pull a few more things out from this text as we talk about sexual holiness, about our sanctification and growth even through sex in the right context. Here's, Here's a few things. Here's the first one. Sexual holiness is God's will. It's his will. This is God's will for you. And I, whether you're married, whether you're not married, whether you've been married in the past, this is God's will for all of us. And just because someone gets married doesn't mean there's any less temptation to sexual sin, like we said. This is for all of us. Sexual holiness is God's will. God's will is what pleases God. That's his will. And his will for you, the text says right here in verse 3, is to be sanctified, which means to grow in actual holiness. And his will, he says here, is that you abstain, is the word he uses, from sexual immorality. In other places, the Bible says flee, run, flee from sexual immorality. So what does that mean? What is sexual morality? That's important if Paul says abstain from it. The Bible says flee from it in other places. Again, back to college ministry, as I served there for many years, one of the big questions, the big topics that would come up is how far is too far <laughs> for a couple who's not married, maybe dating? You know, how, how far, Jeff, is the, can I go to the line? How much can I dip my toe in the water before it becomes sin? That was really on the mind of a lot of young adults. And this is one area in the Bible where the answer is really simple and clear. God doesn't leave you and I guessing. Leave us guessing. Here's what it means sexual holiness means abstaining from sexual immorality, which is any sexual act outside of marriage. It's that simple. It's simple. The word for sexual immorality here is the word pornea. Does it sound like something? Pornography. And that word that the Bible uses many times, that Greek word captures any sexual activity outside of marriage. Premarital sex, adultery, pornography, gay sex, all of these fall into that category of sexual morality. You know, our Bible really doesn't have a guideline to dating, and that's okay. You know, in some cultures, it was arranged marriages. In our culture today, it's more a process of getting to know somebody. And there really is not necessarily a prescription for how a relationship should pro- progress from meeting someone to marriage. But as it talks about how we relate to the opposite sex, it's pretty clear. There's two categories, men and women. And there's really only two categories of relationship between men and women. And one is this one, Married. Husband and wife—that's one relationship in the Bible. The Bible talks about it. it's it's husband to wife. The other relationship in the Bible, the only other one that it talks about between a bro- uh, man and woman, is like a brother and a sister. So I used to tell those college students—they really loved me for this. They really were grateful. <laughs> I would say to them, "Are you married?" And they would to her, and he and the the boy, you know, would, the man, young man would say, "No." And and I said, "Well, then, how would you physically act with your sister?" Or your brother? There's your answer. The Thessalonians knew that sexual morality, what sexual morality was in their culture. And Paul, too, wants for us to make it really clear. A response to Jesus and his gospel and an ongoing faithful holy life is a call to abstain from sexual purity. He goes on in verse 4. Look at it again with me. That so that so that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. This is the will of God, your sanctification, so that you will abstain from sexual immorality, so that you will control your body in holiness and honor. Here's our next subpoint sexual holiness is stewarding our bodies in holiness and honor. What that means is that you and I don't have a license to do with our body whatever we would like to do. And there's a lot of discussion today and topics and debate even on what are we allowed to do with our body, down to discussions on gender and our biological organs. What what are we allowed to do with our body? We don't have a license if God has made us, if he's given us the body he's wanted us to have. We don't have a license to do with our body whatever we want, whenever we want. This body's a good gift from God. And if you're a believer, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes it in other places. That is your body. So what does that look like to, to use your body in holiness and honor to steward it well? Well, if you're single, it means waiting until marriage. There's an article out there today that talks about, is celibacy cruel? Is celibacy cruel to ask for those who are not married or who were at one time married? Is that a cruel thing to put upon somebody? Take a look at that article if you are today, somebody who's single or wondering. But that's God's call for our life. If you're married, it means expressing your sexuality only in the context of your marriage. Sex is the giving of ourselves for the sake of the other person. That's what marriage is, really. The giving of yourself for the sake of the other person. And Paul says here we're to steward our bodies. It's it's to take good care of, to make sure we use it in its proper, right way, to pursue self-control. We steward our bodies that way. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. But we also positively steward our bodies, not just in denial, if maybe we're not uh, married or denying ourselves sex outside of marriage and in the negative context, but positively we do that when we steward our bodies. Look at verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Here's where we begin to understand why God has placed. Limitations on sex. Like I said, he's not just a cosmic killjoy. He didn't just want to give us something great and fantastic and wonderful and powerful as sex is and say, sorry, you can't use it though. And pull it away from us. Here's what that verse says in 6 like, Sexual sin is a sin against another. He says you transgress your brother when you sexually sin." You know, there's two ideas we hear a lot about in our culture as it surrounds sex and, and, and relates to sex. There's two ideas we have. Here's, here, here's what they are. One is the only thing that's needed for sex to be good is that it's between two consenting adults. And if it is, it's a victimless act. That's the one. As if consent was the only moral issue surrounding Sex, there's an article out there on that today, is, is, is consent the only moral thing needed for sex? This text teaches us actually something entirely different. So that's the one thing you hear, sex, good sex is just all things, the only thing you need is consent. And actually it's not even between necessarily two adults anymore, it's getting argued in some ways in our culture for children actually. Um, but here's the other one, make sure it's, it's safe sex. You've heard those. Consent and safe sex. And if you go to high school or junior high, you probably have those messages drilled into your brain. That's all you need. Consent and keep asking for consent along the way and make sure it's safe sex as if that's all you need. So well, let's say this about them. The one is a half-truth and the other one actually is mostly a lie. So let's talk about that. The first one, consent. Sex is soulless, you might say. It's powerful. It was given by God to be the ultimate expression of commitment between two people. So when someone says only consent matters, of course consent matters, but it falls so far short. That's why I said it's only a half-truth. It falls so far short of reality. When you commit sexual sin, Paul says here, you're committing sin against that other person. You transgress against them. And not only them, but maybe their future spouse. Have you thought of that? Who that person's future spouse will be. Or or their current spouse, if it's somebody who's married. And how about the, the transgressing against their children? If you're entering into sexual intimacy with someone who has children, too. You transgress them, the text says. It's not just a sin against your own body. You transgress them. But yeah, but pornography... We're not, there's no one there. It's victimless. Uh, There's no one there. It's a screen, it's a phone, it's, you know. But that's a person. And that's a woman with a history. And probably a family. And a past. And a mother. And a father. And so even with the use of pornography, you're transgressing that person. With that sex. Or that act. Paul says it's a transgression. Some in the culture say, yeah, but premarital sex. Yeah, but we love each other. We love each other, and I think we're, we're probably going to get married. We're pretty sure we're going to get married. Let's tease that one out for a minute. Let's tease that out for a minute. Premarital sex. I love her. I love him. It's okay. Let me say this really clear. There can be no such thing actually as sex for love outside of marriage. Let me have our youth hear me again. Let me, make, let me see your eyes. Some of our youth in here. You. There is no such thing as sex for love. Outside of marriage, as much as a boy might tell you, as much as a girl might tell you, it's impossible, actually, because of what sex is. Let me explain that. To tell someone you want to have sex with them for love and only share part of you, which is your body, right? A body is needed for sexual act, and only share your body for them But outside of marriage is like saying to them, Yeah, I want to share my body with you, but share my life and my mind and my finances and my things and my time and my commitment? Yeah, not so much. I kind of want to do this body thing, but all those other things? Is that loving? Is that loving? It's actually exploiting someone and using them for personal gratification. So let me say that again. There's no possible way to have sex for love outside of marriage, it's not possible because you're just giving one part of yourself and keeping everything else back, and that's actually not the definition of love. The definition of love is a giving of your entire self. So if somebody uses that on you some days, yeah, but I love you. Okay, what did Beyonce say? Put a ring on it? I think that was the phrase she said. I mean, to make it really clear, it can't be for love outside of marriage. It just can't. So you're abusing someone. You're sinning against them. If you use that line of arguing too to get that. How about the other one? Safe sex. So consent was the first. How about safe sex? Outside of marriage, that's an absolute lie. So the first one was a half-truth. Consent is all you need. Safe sex is actually a lie. Why? Sex ties your soul to someone. It's meant to do that. That's why it's powerful. That's why God gave it. That's why he put it in the context of marriage. Because when you have sex, it ties your soul. It's soulish. And when you do that without the security of marriage, which is why... Laws against divorce were a good thing because it gave you that security. But when you do that outside of the context of marriage, you're opening yourself up for a normal breakup to have the devastating effect of a divorce. Do you see what I'm saying? Sex outside of marriage cannot ever be safe because it'll tie your soul and heart to that person. That's why so many college students and young teenagers and high schoolers feel like they're going through a divorce when they've had a sexual relationship because they actually kind of are. Because sex is soulish. Transgression happens every time sex happens outside of marriage. So you see, God's not a cosmic killjoy. He wants to keep you from going through 15 divorces in your life because you've had sex with 15 different people. Does that make sense to our youth too? Even in a marriage, you can transgress the other. Let's think about that for a minute. Sex can be abused in marriage even. Maybe using sex to manipulate your spouse demanding sex when you've had a broken emotional connection. Maybe some have even used that 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, but your body, you, Paul says you owe it to me. Can you imagine demanding sex when you have that broken emotional connection? What could be, I mean, think about that. What could be more selfish than saying and unloving to refuse to make amends emotionally but yet demand sex just because you're married? That's not loving. I think that would be transgressing the other inside of marriage too, This stuff is heavy. But there's even more startling warning than the transgressing your brother. Look back at 6 and 7 with me. He says, No one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, we solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but for holiness. Here's our next Subsection. Sexual sin exposes us to the judgment of God and actually is a complete dismissal of God. It exposes us to the judgment of God and it's a dismissal of God. Paul's talked about these things before, but he's saying, he even says, I've, I've talked to you about this before. He's saying sexual sin is opening us to the judgment of God. God takes this seriously, in other words. Really seriously. Sometimes that judgment, the consequences are physical sometimes, with premarital sex, sometimes emotional, actually all the time emotional. And a lot of times there's even a communal judgment and impact of premarital sex or out, sex outside of marriage. So to sexually sin, Paul says, is to open yourself up to the judgment of God. That He's an avenger in all these things is the, the exact quote from the text. But also, not just disregarding Paul or what Paul says or disregarding the law, but to sexually sin is to disregard God himself. He's cast us off or to cast him off. He's called us to be pure as he is. So if you disregard this, you're not disregarding Paul. You're not disregarding what I say today or just what Pastor Jeff kind of wants for your life. No, you're disregarding God, Paul says. These are really strong words. God takes this really seriously. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we, how do we live this way when our sexual desires are strong? It is a strong desire we have, and our temptations are real. How do we do it? Let's look at the fourth truth to wrap up. How do we pursue holy sex? Let's talk about the power of gospel, of the gospel for holy sex. Don't know why I have a dry mouth this morning. It's not a nervous topic or anything. (laughs) Our sexual struggles are real, aren't they? And we have all failed in this area. Some of you might be sexually addicted now, might be addicted to pornography now. Some of you I know have been sexually abused. Some of you are sexually cut off in your marriage and wondering how to regain that intimacy. And some of you have been carrying the shame of sexual sin for decades. What's the answer? How do we go forward in this sensitive and complex issue? The, well, the first thing we have to hear is this, and we said it up top, but I want us to hear it again Sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. Sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. Hear that right now and let those words wash over your soul. Sexual sin, let me say it again, is not the unforgivable sin. Even if some of your sexual sin resulted in an abortion, it is not the unforgivable sin. It doesn't put you beyond the pale of redemption. It doesn't ultimately, and it can't ultimately, as a follower of Christ, destroy your life or make a healthy future marriage impossible. Jesus died for sexual sinners too. Like you, like me. And sometimes we're harder on ourselves and carry more shame and baggage with our sexual sin, harder on ourselves and hold it over our heads more than Christ does. Because we don't trust that ultimate free forgiveness. Let your shame go and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. It's not the unforgivable sin. Well, here's more. There's gospel power for real change, too. You can change. There's more connections in this text. Verse 8 says that God gives us his spirit to make us holy. But look up at chapter 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, For all as we do for you, so that you may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here's something he's telling us is God wants holiness for us. He asks for holiness for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to pursue it. Sexual holiness comes from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Who is it that makes us Holy. Who is it that establishes us in in his presence as as holy, as Paul said in 3.12? God is the one. God is the one who will do this work in you. It's it's the great news of the gospel. God and the Spirit give us power. It's a work of God by the Spirit to change you. This is the gospel. He can change you. Your temptations don't have to stay the same. He's going to make you holy, and he's going to forgive you, and he's going to do this by the work of his Spirit. He's going to turn you into what he's called you to be. So you're not alone in this. Here's another one. Sexual holiness is a progressive goal. What does chapter 4 verse 1 say? Finally, brothers, we ask you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Our growth is to be ongoing. It's to be more and more and more. We, We can progress, Paul is saying. We're not perfect, and none of us will be sexually perfect until the Lord comes or we pass away, but you can grow more and more progressively. Do you see how hopeful that is for sexual brokenness? You don't have to stay the same. Even if you're addicted to pornography, that can change. There can be real victory and growth, and broken marriages can heal, if the Spirit is the one who does this, and if God calls us to ongoing growth. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean there won't still be real struggles. There will be. But real change is possible. But you have to want it. You have to work towards it. You have to go for it. You have to, to pro- progress in your submission to God and His will as you grow in gospel love. And it's our next one. Our next gospel power for holy sex is this. Sexual holiness is a fruit of loving others. Verse 12 said that, that your love may abound more and more for each other and for all, so that our love for one another will abound. It's one of the motivations for sexual holiness. It's a progressive work of God, but he uses multiple means, the Holy Spirit and the love of others. Here's what that means. You cannot fight sexual sin and temptation alone. You cannot do that. There's actually no idea or concept in the Bible of somebody battling sin alone. It's always meant for the community context. That's why something like our DNA group is the perfect place to wrestle with sexual sin with just two other men or two other women that have the same struggles as you. You cannot do it alone. Friends who will empathetically not be shocked at your sin, but also not let you off the hook and challenge you to grow We'll walk with you towards sexual holiness. The love of others is the path to holiness and healing. You can't fight it alone. So if you're struggling, reach out. Contact me. That's why I'm here as your pastor. It's not to judge you. It's to help you. Contact one of your elders. There are resources. There are counselors. There are support groups. There are others in the church. You are not alone. You're not alone. Finally, one more gospel power today. We'll close. Sexual holiness is only a foretaste of Jesus' faithfulness to us. Who was the ultimate one-woman man? It was Jesus. Do you know that all through the Bible, spiritual idolatry, is, descri- spiritual idolatry is, de- is described as a type of adultery. Idolatry equaling adultery. Look at Isaiah 57 later today if you want to blush. Take a look at that. But Hosea 4 says this, My people inquire of a piece of wood, an idol. And their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they've left their God to play the whore. Why does God liken idolatry to adultery? Why? Because he is so absolutely committed in himself to us in absolute faithfulness. Jesus, a one-woman man. It's the idea of covenant love, not contractual that we talked about. He has bound himself to us in his relationship. He's absolutely faithful to his bride, the church is called. And he's the ultimate one-woman man. It's the gospel power for marriage, for sexual temptation. Jesus, in absolute fidelity, gave himself for you. And he continues to. And he died the death for us we couldn't and lived the life we couldn't and rose again and is is coming again for us. We've abandoned him, right? We've played the sexual or the idolatrous, the, the whore, he even says that word, which is so harsh. We've played that. We've abandoned him. He's never abandoned us. He's absolutely faithful to you. And sex is the ultimate expression of commitment, giving one of oneself, of two becoming one. So in the gospel, we are wed. You are wed to Jesus. And he comes into us and he unites himself to us in some pretty actually sexual type of language in the Bible. And the two become, we become one with him. Sex in the gospel, it works both ways. The more you pursue a biblical holy sex life in a loving marriage, the more you'll appreciate Jesus' loving fidelity for us. And the more you understand his loving fidelity for us, you'll fight the temptation of sexual temptation, whether you're single or married. The gospel works both ways. Is it any surprise that the consummation of heaven, when he comes back and heaven and earth unite, is it any surprise that the coming together of Jesus with his people is, is presented as a marriage? a marriage supper. You know, the Bible begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. It's both of those things. The gospel and sex, they work both ways. We just scratched the surface this morning, just a bit. Like I said, there's lots of resources out there, and if you want to chat today or talk um, Come to room two. or so I'll be in there afterwards for elder prayer. If you've got questions about this or grab me up here right after service. But can I pray for us? We need prayer in this area. Let's do that. Christ, we need your love, guidance, and gospel love for sexual temptation. May you free someone today from shame and guilt they've been carrying for decades, years maybe. May you grow us in our ability to be faithful and put sex in its proper context. May you give the youth in this room such a deep love for you and intimacy that they can't imagine transgressing and offending you, God, through premarital sex. May you give our marriages in here strength and the ability to realize that sexual intimacy must only be the fruit of relational intimacy. And may you grow us in this area, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.